0: Hi, welcome to listeners everywhere. My name is Phil Dye. This is the first episode in the Filtered series. It won't be a regular podcast, maybe a couple of times a month, but it'll cover different issues. Um, This first episode. On The the Truth About Puberty Blockers is free and open to everyone but all other podcasts will be to subscribers only, subscribers or donors only Subscribing is not expensive, I've set it at $30 a year um, and you get all of the written work plus the podcasts Um, and the occasional song by the way as well In this episode I'll be interviewing Professor John Whitehall Um, a paediatric specialist with over 30 years experience, and he'll be talking about uh, gender dysphoria and really focusing in on puberty blockers and the impact that they have on the individual. Most of the John Whitehall interview is from a podcast I run separately for teachers called Marking the Role, but this is a slightly edited version to make it um, accessible for, for everyone. Before the interview, though, I'm going to give you some background as to my interest in this particular subject. As some of you know, the article that I wrote um, on my substack uh, called The End of the Rainbow questioned the continued inclusion of the transgender community in the uh, LGBTQIA plus alliance. Uh, the reason that I question that and that many are questioning that is that the transgender community are still promoting and, in their words, celebrating uh, the gender transitioning of children as young as nine. And, of course, this involves puberty blockers, uh, hormones and uh, potential surgery. Uh, And many in the LGB communities are uh, questioning this. They're angry that they then have to be a part of this alliance where this is happening to kids. In all of the other areas of the Rainbow Alliance, uh, cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers and surgery, they're not a part of it, but they are in the trans community. So it's little wonder that other parts of the rainbow flag i guess starting to get very titchy about this all-in-one approach, that this hive mind, is, they've got to be included in this hive mind mentality that involves gender transitioning with, um, with, with drugs, with potential surgery, to kids as young as nine years old. However, I also know that there's some very, very rational uh, and logical people in the trans community. And Uh, They've uh, transitioned uh, and they now feel that it is not appropriate for uh, kids uh, and those under 18 because uh, they indeed look back and say that they weren't um, really um, equipped mentally to deal with the entire process. And many are now de-transitioning. Now, for those about to accuse me of being some religious nut, uh, I'm not. I'm not a religious person at all. And for those others who are going to say this is just a right-wing opinion, um, I can guarantee you that I'm not that right-wing. I simply care for the kids. I'm an ex-teacher, a neuroscience educator. I worry about what's happening to the kids these days. Uh, and if that's a right wing thing to do, well, well <laughs> maybe I am. Um, but I think it's a human thing to do is to worry about what's happening to kids these days, especially kids who are vulnerable, who are obviously troubled. My grandfather was a transvestite. He lived in Newtown. He was a part of the Sydney Push And uh, grandma was always a bit worried when he went off dressed as a woman and he would play piano at some of the Sydney push functions. Now, for those listening from um, overseas or interstate, the Sydney push was a group of very progressive men and women, a lot of academics, but there was tradespeople as well um, who just had alternative views on things. Um, Now, this was in post Second World War, Sydney, and. in the late 40s, the 50s, and the 60s. Now, transgender really wasn't a thing, but being a tra- transvestite was. And uh, evidently, Grandpa, I never saw him dressed as a woman, but my sisters did, and they said that he was quite beautiful. Um, so he would go out uh, for a couple of days and play the piano and and no doubt drink very heavily at these Sydney push Functions, So I have no problem at all with any of that. I have no problem with someone of mature age being medically transitioned. The problem is when kids of uh, school age embark on that process, students who don't have the maturity to fully understand the research and the implications for gender transitioning. My background for the past 10 years has been as a, a neuroscience educator going into schools. And as a part of that, I was at the University of New South Wales in the School of Medical Sciences. Um, and I was a part of a team that made complex medical things simple. We weren't academics in the true sense of the world. We we're educators. Um, and we certainly weren't doctors. However, we did do a lot of work with the brain and used EEGs to help uh, people understand how the brain worked. And I'm particularly interested in the effects of certain drugs, um, especially uh, hormone drugs on the brain of the adolescent. Uh, as I know that the brain keeps developing until we're really a little bit over 20, nearly nearly 25, and anything we put into it, uh, other drugs, alcohol, etc., uh, changes the brain. It's also true that the prefrontal cortex, which is at the front of the, the frontal lobes, is one of the last areas of the brain to develop. So we're looking at, you know, really over 20 uh, before that develops, and that area is um, responsible for executive function, decision making, uh, planning. Um, so it's a pretty important part of the brain to develop yet it develops later than many others. Now, it's exactly this sort of information that should be given to parents, families, the young person themselves, uh, to teachers, um, to ensure that everyone has all of the details that they need in making a decision on this. This gender-affirming philosophy uh, for school students, for people, under the age of 18, for those even who are 10 and 12 years old, to affirm what a 12, 13, 14-year-old says as being definite and being true for them and being absolute in their life is going too far. To be honest, I don't know whether I knew what I was doing in my life till you know well over 20. Certainly in my teens, it was a little bit chaotic. It's especially chaotic if you've had a traumatic childhood. And 70% of those who are transitioning or have transitioned or desire to uh, have come from childhood trauma backgrounds. Matter of fact, they have three or more um, instances of childhood trauma on their ACE trauma score. And according to a study from Westmead Children's Hospital Gender Centre, 97% have at least one element of childhood trauma. Now, why am I so interested in this? Well, uh, I had a childhood trauma background. I had four incidences uh, in my childhood. Uh, My mother was uh, terribly depressed. She was addicted to prescription drugs. She was addicted to gambling um, and cigarettes. She was, you know, pretty much an addicted person. And um, I had a pretty nasty childhood. My dad worked um, three jobs in order to try and satisfy my mother's gambling addiction. So I had a uh, traumatic childhood, um, and there was other things in it as well, which I'm not going to go into. But when I was uh, 14, um, I pulled my hair out. I started to pull my hair out because of the stress that I was experiencing at home. And um, in some ways, it gave me a sense of relief. I mean, that's what uh, um, self-harm does, I suppose. It does give some people a sense of relief that that has distracted you from from what is happening at home. So I pulled my hair out and I had a... Probably a, uh, a disc the size of a saucer, I suppose, on the top of my head where I'd pulled all my hair out. Now, I didn't tell my mother I was pulling it out. She just thought I had some sort of disease uh, until it got so bad that she took me to the doctor. Um, now, I couldn't tell my mother because she would just get the wooden coat, hang around and bash me again. So um I didn't tell her and I didn't tell the doctor. So the doctor looked at me and said, oh, geez, this is bad, this is bad. It must be alopecia. And he gave me some cream to rub on the uh, the head uh, to help the hair grow back. Now, I was never asked about, okay, why, why do you think this is happening? And not that I would have said it anyway, because I would have been in strife. Um, so, you know, in those days... Um, that's what the doctor did. They didn't look at anything deeper. And at 14 years old, kids don't put the two and two together and say, well, I'm pulling my hair out one by one in order to, in some ways, counteract the abuse that I'm having at home. We don't do that. We don't psychologically analyse it, the same as most of these kids who are going to be or claim that they're transgender also don't put any abuse that they might be having at home with with their feelings, they don't they don't see that one might be causing the other. But in reality, I thought that most households were like this. Didn't think much was was really different until I started to go to a couple of friends' places and um, uh, witnessed what family life was like. And I thought, gee, this is why it's <laughs> very different to this. Um, And I realise now that kids who are undergoing gender transitioning or say that they feel they're in the wrong body, they probably don't realise that their home is dysfunctional either. They probably think whatever they've put up with over the last 12, 13, 14, 15 years is quite normal. Whereas it's probably not because we we know from the um, the Westmead research that nearly a hundred percent of kids who question their gender um, have had at least one incident of childhood trauma, maybe sexual abuse, maybe neglect, maybe uh, depression of a of a family member, so it's unlikely, even if asked, I guess, that the kids are going to come out and say, "Oh, yes, but Dad does this or mum does that." Um because they think it's quite normal now, I'm not dismissing the approximately five percent of of kids um who don't come from trauma backgrounds uh and I feel desperately sorry for those kids as I feel sorry for all of them um and for those parents who are going through this, um I feel for you as well. It must be absolutely awful um but um yes. We can't deny that a lot of these kids have had childhood trauma backgrounds. Um, and um, this is when the gender-affirming stuff comes in rather than looking at those uh, the background of those kids, looking deeply at that background. Now, while I may have... Um, uh, done some self-harm in pulling my hair out. Thank goodness I didn't go into more extreme versions of it, with cutting, poisoning or burning. I didn't go into drugs. I found a way of directing my attention, but most importantly, a way of staying out of the home for as long as possible. I found relief in music and in drama, joined uh, drama clubs, um, mainly due to great teachers. Uh, My music teacher was Richard Gill, the great Richard Gill drama, Francis Spillane. And I managed to uh, escape the home mainly through play practice and music practice. And that gave me a group and um, a great pathway forward. And I regard myself as incredibly lucky. throughout this episode you're going to hear the words of Bunny, uh, now someone who's 20 years old but who started the gender transition process at school at the age of 16. A girl with a trauma background um, who transitioned to a boy and has now detransitioned. Here's some words from uh, a recent tweet from Bunny.
1: The trans community lied to me. When I was a teenager, I was told that this discomfort I was feeling, it's just that I was meant to be a boy. And that if I transitioned, I would feel great. I would feel euphoric. It would be, it would be everything. But looking back, I think if someone at that time would have just said, "No, just told me no just been like no, you we're going we're going to get you the help you need it's just a normal teenage thing to feel uncomfortable in your body. maybe i wouldn't be where I am today
0: and with that i'll begin the interview with Professor John Whitehall, and I began by asking him if gender transitioning amongst uh, school age students uh, was as big an issue as the media and some groups would make out.
1: No, I'm sure it's not. Um, I I recollect when I first became aware of this phenomenon, which was in 2015, um, having been a general paediatrician for a number of years, I polled Uh, friends of mine, 28, in fact, uh, pediatricians, and I said, have you ever heard of this? What what do you think? Cumulative years then of 931 years of practice, they could only remember uh, about 12. And 10 of those they remembered because of the comorbid psychiatric condition and two because of the associated uh, sexual abuse. In those days, uh, we used to teach students, and we were aware ourselves, that uh, if a young person was saying they're of the opposite sex, you need to work out, are they escaping from abuse at home? So from that very rare um, prevalence of it, and that's corroborated by other studies. So it was very rare in those years, but now uh, you wouldn't know what the actual prevalence was because it's out there as a kind of a um, social contagion. Some people would say it's like a psychological fad, but I don't, saying that, I I mean it's communicative, it's a psychological issue, it's spread from one to another, but I'm not minimizing the suffering uh,
0: involved. I'm just going to butt in there and explain a term that uh, Professor Whitehall uses uh, throughout this interview, and that is the term of comorbidity. Comorbidity is when one disease exists on top of another. So the two exist simultaneously. So in this case, it could be that gender dysphoria exists together with um, extreme anxiety, um, extreme depression, perhaps, but they exist at the same time. Now back to the interview. Self-harm in the form of cutting, in the form of uh, starvation or self-poisoning or burning doesn't seem to quite be as prevalent, uh, but uh, gender dysphoria is. Do you think it's taken over perhaps as a form of uh, self-harm in order to to escape something?
1: It certainly is characterised by its association, its comorbid association with uh, with with mental disorder in in children, indeed the Lancet, that uh, that journal from England, was considering just the other week uh, why is there such a rise in anxiety and depression uh, in adolescents these days, in particular girls. Now that's a that's a question I can't answer. But in association with that mental instability, uh, this phenomenon has occurred. M- many of them are autistic. It's a sort of a neurodevelopmental problem. Um, that too is more common now than it used to be. So I, I don't understand the reason for this.
0: John, when I was 15, I tried to commit suicide by taking my mother's sleeping tablets. Um, I didn't take enough of them, thank goodness. But I'm certainly glad that when I went to the hospital, the staff didn't say, oh, look, we're going to affirm your decision. You're 15 and, um, you know, it's a legitimate decision. We're going to um, just give you a a needle um, to put you out of your misery. And uh, you can rest assured that your decision has been affirmed. I'm certainly glad that didn't happen.
1: Yes, indeed. I mean, they have come to this diagnosis themselves with the help of friends, the media and as we are saying before, the web and everything. They've come to this diagnosis, There's a certain notoriety about it these days. It certainly gets you noticed. You certainly can create a fuss at school um, and, and you can even become the cheerleader at school. Uh, and and you don't really understand the future. No, no child of that age really understands the maturity of sexuality or gender of these. They say they do, but uh, we don't allow them to make decisions of anywhere near that consequence, such as tattooing themselves or driving a car or joining the army.
0: Or buying a bottle of gin at the bottle shop.
1: Exactly. We don't trust them with that, but here we trust them with this clamour uh, this painful clamour, because of course there's all sorts of trouble if you try to give it, if you try to object to it, and therefore they get their own way, and this is a tragedy, hmm. and end up growing a beard that they regret and so forth, uh, and are sterilised in the process after the surgery, and and what then?
0: John, I'm just going to play you the words of a, a trans activist um, with a, a message on uh, Twitter. Uh, Here, uh, uh, his words. Here are the actual facts. Fact. Medical professionals are not giving puberty blockers to children who have not reached puberty. Fact. Puberty blockers are fully reversible. John, are puberty blockers fully reversible?
1: This is an exceedingly frustrating thing because, no, they're not reversible. And there is abundant literature um, to, to prove that. Uh, from rodents to animals now people will say well you you why are you basing it on animal studies well every other medical thing is based on animal study if you give a, a, a like a sheep a new drug and it drops dead well you don't pursue that line of treatment now in sheep in particular have been given puberty blockers around that peripubertal time and then they did mri studies on their brains found that the limbic system which is in the midbrain area and it coordinates thinking and emotion and drive and reward and and leads you therefore to make the decisions that uh, you think are appropriate to that new assessment of yourself that was hypertrophied in these sheep and then then when they then they donated themselves to science so to speak and people were looking under the microscope and molecular microscope they found that many 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 genes the the function of genes was either up regulated or down regulated and these were very basic constituent genes so what had happened to the sheep that they didn't that didn't make the ultimate sacrifice. Well, they were much more behaviorally disturbed. Their memory was disturbed. Did they get better? No, this was a sustained effect.
0: So, So it had effect on the brain of the sheep.
1: That's correct, on the limbic system in particular, and that was reflected in sustained alteration in their behavior. Now, I don't know why, I don't know why, uh, the children's hospitals continue to assert, like his mantra, uh, that, that puberty blockers are safe and entirely reversible when they they, they can look up the literature or if I look up the literature, they could do it.
0: Yes, interestingly, uh, I contacted the Royal Children's Hospital uh, gender service in Melbourne with the idea of talking to Associate Professor Michelle Telfer, um, asking them similar, asking her similar questions that I would ask you. Um, but um, no, I was told that there was no one who could speak to me at this time. Um, I then contacted the Ma- Maple Leaf House in Newcastle, a transgender support service. And I was told that they'd get back to me, and I rung them again, uh, but of course they didn't get back to me. Now, what about the the sex, the cross-sex hormones, oestrogen and and testosterone? Are people given enough information about that?
1: With regard to the cross-sex hormones, sure, the few, the the. Children's hospitals, and others they'll give you a whole list of complications. Yeah, you can get thrombosis, you can get other things and other things, but they never mention, and this is an odd thing, they never mention the studies by Hushchev, Paul, and others, uh, and they found that if you put adult males on estrogen, by MRI studies measuring, actually measuring the distance, the brain shrinks at a rate 10 times faster than aging, full stop. Now you never hear that. Can you imagine the fuss? And if one branch of the medical profession or forgot to tell you that people's brains shrink at a rate 10 times faster than aging after only four months, can you think of the fuss?
0: So this is for a boy transitioning to a girl um, when they're given estrogen?
1: That was males on estrogen. The girl in the testosterone their gray matter the zones increased in size now nobody knows at a molecular level because you can't hold these people down and take a brain sample off them nobody knows what the actual effect is but they have measured the effect on the mri but they don't even talk about that you see
0: And what are the age limit restrictions on transitioning?
1: The, the guidelines, the Australian guidelines put out by the Children's Hospital did away with the age limits, except they were mentioning you shouldn't have surgery under the age of 18. But essentially, um, there, is no, there is no age limit to it. And what their health department is advising, say the 84 doctors in New South Wales who are doing it, is that you can start the hormones at, at basically at any age in that area um, as long as you have agreement by the child and by both parents. If you have contest between the parents, uh, then that has basically has to go to court. So this, this boy th- thinks he's a girl, and uh, he's puberty-blocked, and he wants to go ahead with it. Now, he's, say, 12, and all the other girls around him are getting breasts. Worse, when he's 14, everyone's got breasts, and he hasn't, and he's the one wearing a dress, and he's the one, you see, there's the argument out there by these people, well, you're just being cruel now Uh, not to give cross hormones because uh, he's standing out as a sort of a breastless uh, immature girl.
0: You're listening to the first of the filtered podcasts. My name is Phil Dye and I'm talking to Professor John Whitehall, a, a paediatrician with over 30 years experience. John, in my research, uh, I searched through many articles and found that uh, 69% of all individuals who are transgendered had uh, a ace trauma, childhood trauma score of three or four. That means that they had had events of childhood trauma in their life, uh, at least three or four of them. Um, the, that trauma could be childhood sexual abuse, it could be physical abuse, it could be uh, a parent with a, with depression, etc. Um, when a, a young person goes to transition in Australia, are these causes of it, are these Um, events of childhood trauma, which may still be going on, a child could still be being abused in the family situation. Are they investigated and dealt with before gender transition is considered?
1: Well, you would hope it would be looked at in depth before you took this massive medical intervention, but I'm not comforted by that. Um, there is a report from Western Australia that I'm involved with just at the moment. And what they are saying is that uh, normally there is this process of assessment of psychological problems. But uh, these children may be directed uh, first to the endocrinologist. So you, you can imagine they got the, the girl who, who was really insistent and there were the parents going along with it. And, and you can imagine people saying, well, gee, we'd better uh, put her on the uh, give in and uh, put her on the cross-sex hormones and so forth. Is it not formalized that that should not occur as it is in Finland? Here, there is freedom, as far as I can see, to cut short the diagnostic process and the sort of cognitive therapy process um, to reorientate the person uh, with the chromosomes in which with which they were born
0: and john you mentioned finland and by anyone's measures finland is a very progressive country uh what are they doing differently, and and how did they get to this state of doing things differently?
1: And I was speaking with one of their uh, psychiatrists um, just recently, and that is, in fact, what she was saying. Uh, they were astonished by this rise of Mentally disordered girls who had heard that they all heard that they were boys, and they were looking therefore and insisting uh, that they pursue the cross-gendering pathway. And when they when they looked more closely at it, they were astonished at how affected these children were, um, like really doing badly in life, uh, staying at home, not not, not socialising, doing badly at school, really in a general kind of slough of of mental disorder and then they hear this kind of siren call that the answer is to be found in becoming a boy.
0: And how easy is it to find doctors who will begin gender transitioning with children from an early age?
1: Uh, there are 84 general practices and well, practices in New South Wales alone uh, which have set themselves up in order to help people transgender. And there is no age limit that I can see there at all, uh, which would restrict them, nor, as far as I can see, is there any obligation to undergo uh, any kind of investigative therapeutic uh, psychotherapy. None. None. So it's like the horse has come out of the stable and and we, now we don't even know where the horse
0: is so before a child is going to have uh, hormones either estrogen or testosterone, um, their puberty has to be blocked, and they take puberty blockers um so that they' are a blank slate and the, and the hormones can then do their do their job. At what age can someone start puberty blockers?
1: Well, the recommendations. But again, these are recommendations. These are not sort of uh, laws. The recommendation is that you would start puberty blockers when the child reached Tanner stage two of puberty, which is uh, development of breast buds in a girl, um, and 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 some enlargement of the testes in a boy. Now, that's a very very. uh, uh, That's not rocket science to actually measure those things the youngest one in the records uh, was was 10 years old now that was a, a boy a natal boy um and you know who knows did, did they did they feel his testicles to we'll see whether they were a bit bigger or not um he had put up a significant argument that he was a girl before that uh, that boy a record of having uh, diagnosed or been diagnosed with mental disorder Um, of significant amount of depression and so forth. Um, But whether they looked at the trauma or whatever, I I don't know about the trauma. But, yes, there were associated comorbidities.
0: Uh, John, look, one final question. If a, um, a young person transitions... And um, later on in life, perhaps they get to the age of 20 and 21, and they decide that this is not for them. They've got continued psychological problems that transitioning hasn't cured them, changed them. Um, And they wish to then detransition and go back, and they're very angry about it. And they decide they're going to sue the doctors that did this. They're going to sue the education departments that let it occur on their watch. They're going to even sue their parents. Um is this something that could happen that we could see this um, avalanche of um, cases against institutions?
1: well of course it could happen We've been, we 've been i I wonder why it happened already the 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 court court case the high court case in Australia set the precedent for this. Was by a Mrs. Whitaker against an ophthalmic surgeon, Dr. Rogers. Um, and uh, he inadvertently failed to tell Mrs. Whitaker of the one in 14,000 chance that operating on the bad eye would so influence, in an autoimmune type way, the good eye um, that blindness might occur. So the court. De- declare that a, a doctor has the awesome responsibility to explain properly and fully and be satisfied that everything is explained um, of, of regarding complications that might occur one in 14,000. That had they known about those things, they wouldn't go ahead with the treatment. Now, how can that possibly happen? They're, these people are saying uh, puberty blockers are safe and entirely reversible. Well, already for 10 years, it has been known in sheep that that's not so.
0: John, thanks for talking to us. I know we'll cop some flack for this episode, but it is the, the well-being of children that we have in mind.
1: It's a miserable, awful, sad problem and children are being caught up in this and uh, my heart goes out to them because uh, they're obviously suffering children and they're going to suffer more I mean irreparable changes to their brain and certainly to their breast to their body and everything like this uh, is the pathway that they are being encouraged to to walk down now that is a really really sad thing
0: and that was professor john whitehall a pediatrician with more than 30 years experience so what can be done about all this i think the the medical staff the parents uh, the the education bureaucracy who obviously aren't asking the right questions Their heart's probably in the right place and they believe very much in what they're doing. However, when our health system, our education system, our university system and our media get hijacked by progressive extremists and the spokespeople for those groups, then we know that there is a problem. Well, perhaps one of the first um, steps would be for other parts of the rainbow flag to have a chat to the transition community and say, yes, look, we're all very happy to be in this rainbow flag, but I think there's one part of the transition story uh, that is more a nightmare than a fairy tale. Um, This idea of transitioning for children while they're at school and under the age of 18. They can't drink, they can't go and gamble, they can't get a tattoo, but... They can go and change their gender. There seems something very wrong with that, and other uh, parts of the rainbow flag can certainly uh, have a influence in this. What also can, can be done is that the media can play uh, a more balanced part. Uh, I personally call on the ABC to have a uh, article on gender detransitioning. They're all very very fine at this uh, gender affirming angle, but the idea of gender detransitioning seems something they're not going to touch. And by the way, who profits most from puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and all of the treatment uh, from the operations needed, for example, double mastectomy? I wonder... The scientific research purporting to justify current medical treatment is often funded by the very drug companies that profit from it. Delmeer van der Waal and Cohen Tennis are the originators of the Dutch protocol on which current gender dysphoria practices are based. As they acknowledge in that seminal paper, the authors are very grateful to Faring Pharmaceuticals for the financial support of studies on the treatment of adolescents with gender identity disorders, well, of course, they're grateful to Fering pharmaceuticals because they make the money from the puberty blockers, from the cross-sex hormones and medications uh, needed as a result of surgery. For far too long, medical research has been funded by the very pharmaceutical companies that stand to make the most money from that research indicating certain things. And gender transitioning, uh, especially for the under-18s, is no exception. And finally, perhaps our premiers, our health ministers, our education ministers in states around Australia and indeed in countries around the world should have a read of the research themselves. They can't rely on their lackeys just to give them information because a lot of our departments are driven by uh, progressive extremists. Now, it's fine to be progressive, but there is extreme Progression, and it seems that there is a lot of that in Australian bureaucracies. I know there's a lot in departments of education around the country. If we are going to avoid one of the darkest times in Australian medical history, then we have to stop this promotion of gender transition to the under 18s and school age kids. We've had many dark days in medical history. One of the darkest in Australia was with uh, thalidomide, a drug that was given to pregnant women to stop their nausea. Um, Worldwide, it resulted in the birth of 10,000 babies who were extremely um, disabled, uh, born with no arms and legs. And an Australian doctor, William McBride, Uh, discovered that this was being caused by the drug thalidomide, which was being widely prescribed here in Australia and around the world. A disaster. Another disaster from around about the same time, 1940s and 1950s, was when doctors prescribed smoking to women, mainly women, In order to avoid depression and to help weight loss. Now, this was influenced by tobacco companies, mainly in America, but it certainly reached here. My mother was prescribed 20 cigarettes a day when I was five years old to combat depression. A couple of years later, um, I remember being in the doctor's surgery at the time, and the doctor upped it to 40 cigarettes a day until a few years later it went up to 60. Of course, um, she got emphysema. Um, But that's what the doctors were doing. That's what they thought was best practice. Again, um, a little bit later on, they stopped the lobotomy program, which was where a Dr. Freeman um, would do lobotomies. Now, a lobotomy was a, um, he used an ice pick actually to go through the eye uh, in order to carve out parts of the brain which were causing mental illness. Uh, He did this with children did it with adults. He did it with the sister of the then President of the United States, John F. Kennedy, who had a mental illness. He did it. The poor woman then could not eat, talk or walk and lived out the rest of her life in various asylums. So there has been many medical disasters in the past 100 years. And it's highly likely that the transition, the gender transitioning of young people, under-18s, school age children, within the next 20 years, will be one of them. And we'll be looking back at this time as one of the darkest periods in world medical history. I'm going to um, let a detransitioner, Kat Katenson from the USA, just round up this episode. My name's Phil Dye. You've been listening to the first in the uh, podcast series called Filtered. Um, There'll be another episode within the next few weeks, uh, but those episodes will be only available to subscribers at $30 a year, or you can become a donor to the podcast. I'll see you again soon.
1: Some very loud voices, uh, you know, trans activists within the community are really speaking for people who are not trans identified and trying to basically construct the narrative about all of society based on like the small minority group. And I think that's really dangerous for, you know, young, impressionable people.